I told you they could clap on two and four, right? <laughs> Just takes a little coaching. Not for me, though. <laughs> Those who do, do. You know, we all have different gifts, but the same spirit, right? That's what Pentecost is about. Mm-mm-mm. Wore my red socks today. I'm ready to go. My red pants, my red tie. Forgot that it was Pentecost, but I wore the red anyways. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, church is about over, and I'm just getting started. Okay. Don't worry about the time. Okay, we're good. We're good. We just got to leave for the airport by 12. We got to leave for the airport by 12. That is true. <laughs> Frank and I are both flying out this afternoon. Uh, this has been an overwhelmingly wow weekend for me. Um, a year ago, I left my ministry in Nashville after 19 years to launch a freelance UU music ministry, whatever that is, you know. You can, you can make a living at it, actually, it turns out, because of dear and generous friends like Frank who say yes a year ago to crazy ideas like, hey, let's do a th- festival about music I haven't actually written yet for people who we know will certainly show up, you know. And they did, and the music got written, and it was just a glorious, glorious day. And it was once again, for me, an affirmation of music's ministry in my life, music's ministry among us. Sometimes, you know, I'm I'm often called a minister of music, which is a bit of a misnomer, Because music is the one that does the ministry. Music moves us when the words alone are not enough. Music takes us to that deeper place. And my job as a composer is to listen for the song that's trying to break through and just to write it down. So often the, the best stuff that I've written, the things that I feel most fully that was really good were never me in the first place. When I read Rabbi Rabbi Rami Shapiro's text, I Choose You, and I sat down at the piano and I went, and it was just right there. I went, well, there it is. That song was just waiting to be written down. What a joy it is to hear it come to life and let music minister to all of us through those words. But that's what music does. Music imprints on us in a way that words alone never can. And we know this, we know this um, through brain science. So the humanists in the room are always like, oh, woo, woo, music, music, music. Okay, here's brain science, right? The brain science of uh, people who work with Alzheimer's patients have discovered that if they do music therapy, if you sing songs from way back in the the memories, the, the, the early childhood, the early years of that person with Alzheimer's, it unlocks part of the brain that had been frozen out. And the memories come flooding back, even if only for a time. The right song that triggers memory. You know what I'm talking about? Have you heard about this research? You may have even experienced it yourself. And we know this. I, I like to prove this. How many of you in the room, uh, now this is riskier when I'm not in the South, but um, how many of you went to vacation Bible school at some point in your life? Oh, good, 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 good. Sing me a song from Vacation Bible School. For the Bible. Keep, go ahead, keep going. 
and little ones to him belong. They are weak. Oh, yes, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. The Jewish folks in the room are like, wait a minute now, who are these people? <laughs> what just happened, right? Now, there was another popular song, and we're going we're gonna to stick with Vacation Bible School. Now, if you didn't go to Vacation Bible School, I promise that isn't the point of all this, but, you know, but, but it's funny to notice who knows songs you've never heard before, right? Um, the other Vacation Bible School song, you remember, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, ooh, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Okay, so problematic language-wise. I mean, we don't talk about diversity that way, right? But, but, oh, oh, God. But it matters what we sing. It matters that you who have not sung that song in a few years, I'm going to guess, right? We won't name how many decades it's been for some of you, right? have instant recall. And some of you actually are remembering a feeling of being in that place, even if theologically it's not where you are, of being cared for and loved and known as a young child. And it's a beautiful thing. And so I ask you, in 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and someone asks our children, to sing me a song from your childhood that tells me the story of who you were and the community you were a part of, what are they going to sing? What songs tell the story of who we are right now? What are we imprinting on our children? And how do we take seriously that responsibility that when the children are with us in worship, we imprint on them the story of who we are? Because it matters. Think about those two songs. They are weak, but he is strong. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Those are very, very different theological trajectories. One tells you you are never strong enough. You're never good enough. You will always be dependent. And the other says we are all beloved. Those two stories send people on very different journeys, depending on which song is your song. It matters what we sing. Now, we in Unitarian Universalism have, been, have known this, and we've been struggling with this for centuries. If you look at the hymnals, and I love, I'm a hymnal wonk. I love hymnals, right? The stories that our hymnals tell about who we are and who we have been over time. If you look in your gray hymnal, we won't sing all these songs. I'll save that for the workshop some other time. But if you look in your hymnal number 12, the gray hymnal, O life that maketh all things new. You know it's an old song because they say maketh. You know. Now this is a song that came out in the, it came out, like it, like it was the top 10, you know. <laughs> was, was written in the 1860s or so by Samuel Longfellow. You may have heard of his older brother, Henry Wadsworth. Uh, Samuel Longfellow and his friend Samuel Johnson were students at Harvard Divinity School in the mid-1800s, and they thought that Unitarians needed a hymnal, and so they wrote one. They, they put one together. 
and they, uh, they wrote all these hymns. And if you look at this song, it's a really interesting thing. Oh, life that maketh all things new. Notice that the word life is capitalized. Isn't that interesting? I think so. <laughs> I think it's interesting that if we look at the, the end of the third verse of that hymn, in all these ways we are one, Samuel Longfellow says, we are one in the larger thought of God, which is what they mean by the word life, which is why they capitalize it. And those old hymnals are full of randomly capitalized nouns where they're trying to name some, the larger thought of God in poetic language, in this beautiful way, this more expansive way, because Unitarians have been predicting the end of God for a very long time. Every generation says, okay, it's really done this time. We're sure of it. And let's find other ways to talk about whatever that thing is, right? And so these stories, the hymnal has all these stories. There are stories like when we sing, we would be one as now we join in singing, which was written when our Unitarian and Universalist youth came together in the 1950s and they merged and a hymn was written for their merger. And, and so it's youth singing, we would be one because the youth figured it out before the grown-ups did, as is often the case. As tranquil streams that meet and merge and flow as one and to seek the sea, sung at the celebration of the merger when the adults finally did get it worked out in 1961. And yet, right after merger, a new hymnal came out in 1964 called Hymns for the Celebration of Life. And it was almost immediately out of date. Because the we of that hymnal didn't tell the whole story of who we were. And the way we noticed it most clearly in the, early, in the late 60s was around gendered language. Because it's a hymnal full of men and man and men and man, right? And some of us started to say, you know what? I don't actually notice myself in the we when all we say is men and man. And some people got upset about that because they liked their metaphors the way they've always been and said, it's just a metaphor. And some folks said, you know what? It's, it's really not just a metaphor. It's leaving me out. And we had to struggle with that and change our language. And in 1992, when the Gray Hymnal came out, we said our we wasn't big enough because we had never in our history had a hymnal that contained anything written by someone who wasn't white. And in 1992, that hymnal came out, and there are 30 songs that have either an African-American or an African author or composer. 30 songs. Because our we wasn't truly reflective. There were African-American folks in our pews in 1964 when that blue hymnal came out, but the we didn't tell the whole story of who we are. We are a gentle, angry people, and we are singing, singing for our lives. A song that Holly Nears used to calm the crowd in San Francisco when Harvey Milk was assassinated. We are a gentle, angry people, because our we wasn't big enough, and we had to include and expand our sense of who we meant by the word we, a little tiny word that means so much to so many. 
We are standing on the side of love. We are answering the call of love. Because some people said, you know, you keep talking about standing at these rallies that I can't actually get to in my wheelchair. And you tell me it's just a metaphor, just like men is just a metaphor. But I keep not being able to get there to the thing you're saying is the most important thing we do is we show up for justice. And I'm starting to think that maybe if I can't stand, I'm not actually welcome. I had to hear that and change the words to respond to that need because the we wasn't big enough. So who's still not in our we? Whose voice is not represented? Whose story is not told among us? What songs will our children sing when they are old and someone asks them to tell me the story of who you are as a person of faith? Sing me a song. Music ministers to us because it helps us understand who we are. But music needs something to work with. It needs to know who we think we are. Who do we say we are? Now, for a long time, lots of Unitarian Universalists have claimed rather flippantly that we can believe whatever we want. As though wanting to believe something is what makes it happen. Because see, matters of faith are never matters of choice. You believe what you do because your life tells you it's true. I noticed on your Haverhill website, the UU Church website, it says, you're welcome here just as you are. Your faith is welcome here. But that's actually not true. Look again at the reading we get, the sources that you read. These are the sources of our living tradition. We claim these as Unitarian Universalists. Many of us have never read that statement that you read. Did you recognize that today, what we read? Okay, good, Frank. Good job. Good job. If you look in your front of your hymnal, just after the table of contents, nobody ever looks at the table of contents of a hymnal, but there is one. Uh, Just before the first hymn, there is the statement of the seven principles. We know the seven principles, right? And then right afterward, it says, the living tradition we share draws from many sources. It says, we are all of this. And yet, when we look at that statement, you have to know there are beliefs that don't fit into what we've claimed there, which is why every one of those statements has the word witch. It's not because we like witches. It's because we have conditions Jewish and Christian teachings, which call us to whatever it says about God's love and loving your neighbor, something like that, right? But it recognizes there are Jewish and Christian teachings that have nothing to do with that, and that's not part of who we are. Every community has boundaries, or it's not actually a community. So many of our congregations say, just believe what you want. You're fine the way you are. It's just not true. 
I mean, sure, you're loved, you're lovable. But as, as Frank, when we were saying last night, we heard some, one of our colleagues said this, you are loved, you are worthy, and you could use a little work. <laughs> See you in church, right? That that's what we come here for. is because you know what? We actually need a little work. So instead of pretending we don't have any borders, our task is to live into the identity we proclaim. All of it. Even the words that make us uncomfortable because our integrity demands it. So, you know, I'm, I'm on the internet and I'm thinking about a new church home. I, I want to go somewhere. My, my, I have a four-year-old child who's asking questions that are making me nervous. So I start looking, I was like, we should probably go to church. Honey, I think we need to go to church, you know? Because <laughs> somebody's gotta answer these questions. So I'm gonna do some research and I find the quiz. You know the quiz? Where you answer all the questions and then if you say, this, this question's really not very important to me, then you're gonna be like 99% Unitarian Universalist. It comes up, you're like, what is that? And then Google being what it is, an ad pops up that says UUA.org. You're like, oh, wow, look at that, that's very convenient and a little creepy. And so you click on it, and it goes, takes you to UUA.org, where uh, you read the principles and the sources. You're like, this is amazing. And you see a picture of every person of color who has ever set foot in a UU church. Wow, this is amazing. I mean, they, this is great. Let me find a local congregation. And they find the UU Church of Haverhill. And it says all the right stuff. I am welcome here just as I am. Great. This is fantastic. I'm going to show up. And you have about four minutes to be who you say you are before they start to wonder, right? Are you who you say you are? The principles and the sources are a promissory note to newcomers. They want to know if it could possibly be true, this thing that I've been looking for all my life, is it really true that you're it? We sing this story. Did you know, if you look at the table of contents, this is very exciting to me, of the hymnal, both of those hymnals are organized by the sources. There are six sections. Well, there's only five in the gray hymnal because the sixth source didn't exist when we had the gray hymnal came out. But in, in the turquoise hymnal, it's turquoise and not teal, just so you know. <laughs> Check your color wheel. I have a colleague who went to Rhode Island School of Design. She's like, I don't know anything about music, but I know that's turquoise. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but but there are six groups of hymns, and they're about equally distributed. Because all of that we claim around the sources is who we are. And so we have to sing from each of those collections. Not just the Christmas carols, <laughs> but all of it. And when we notice that, when we notice who we say we are, then this whole humanist-theist debate, which seems to be a thing in Unitarian Universalism, is not a thing. It's a fake fight. Because we're both. We're both and. You can't exclude one or the other and be a Unitarian Universalist congregation. Personal discomfort with language or theological constructs is a sign of the work you need to do to become a spiritually mature person. Too often we accommodate these allergies. People in my national church, I have an allergy to that word. It's like, 
You know what? I take Claritin and Flonase every day for my allergies because if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to go outside. The allergies are really bad in Nashville. We're in the yellow season now where it's pollen everywhere, right? If I didn't take my medicine, I would not be able to go out and join the human community. We have to take our medicine so we can get out there and do the work in the spiritual backyard that is calling us. And our songs are the best allergy medicine we could imagine. They give us the opportunity to sing the whole of who we claim to be and to notice where I might have a little bit of work to do on my own. Now, this is not just true about music. This is true about every aspect of congregational life because it's not about us. It's about equipping us for service in the world that is desperate, desperate for what we have to offer. The Reverend Michael Piazza, who's a church consultant and formerly the pastor of the 10,000 member Cathedral of Hope, which is an evangelical LGBTQ church in Dallas, Texas. Let that sink in for a moment. 10,000 member evangelical queer church in Dallas. All right. Michael Piazza, not the baseball player, teaches that when we join a church, we take off our bib and we put on our apron. We take off our bib and we put on our apron. So many of our churches miss this essential truth, that to be church means to be of service in the world in need of our saving message of love and hope beyond the divisions and the destruction we see all around us. Church equips us for this work, and our songs are essential tools in that process. And so we put on our aprons and we sing. And as we sing, we dare to draw a wider circle of inclusion and representation, singing the questions out loud in public conversation, in acts of kindness and struggle, in moments of redemption and witness, imprinting our faith and our values on our children and on our wider communities. We sing to join our heads and our hearts our message, and our mission, that we might be encouraged to grow out of our selfish instincts and into a life of open-hearted and generous service. We get ourselves out of the way so that we can put our bodies on the line when it matters. This morning, you heard we sang a song during the meditation time Love, once again, break our hearts open wide. That was the song that I wrote the morning after the events of Charlottesville, Virginia last summer. I didn't know what to do with the feeling I had after these white supremacists had marched on Charlottesville and clergy, people I loved, were there arm in arm in the streets and this woman was killed and there were torches and it was just this scene that was so visceral and awful and I didn't know what to do with what I was feeling. And when I sat down at the piano, that's what came out. Love once again, break our hearts open wide. 
Because what was true was that I wasn't actually feeling anything. I'd become so numb to seeing this over and over and over again. And God helped me on Friday, another school shooting, and I didn't feel anything. I'm so used to it now. And so I prayed for love to break my heart open that I might actually feel the grief I needed to feel, to be human, to feel connected. But that's not enough. It's not enough to feel. We then have to respond somehow. And as that week went on, after the Charlottesville incident, videos start popping up. And I saw a video of my dear friend, our president, Susan Frederick Gray, who interned in Nashville. We shared an office together 20 years ago. Um, Arm in arm with other clergy and colleagues in the street, facing a bank of armed militia with semi-automatic weapons, staring them down and chanting, love has, love has, love has already won. That's a song right there. I hope nobody's written it yet. And I Googled it real fast. And... Because these were people who said, our faith matters, showing up matters, and we're going to put our bodies on the line. And to give them the courage and the resolve to be there, they had to ground themselves in this theological truth, which is the core of our universalist heritage, that love has already won. Amen. So get to work. Will you join me in singing? Love has already won. You'll find it printed in your order of service. In the flash of hate and terror, in the sinful lie of fear, there's a as sure as the day greets the morning sun. Love has already won. Love has already won. Be not afraid. Love has already won. Will this violence break our spirit? Love has all.